This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. Who are you? I'm Chris Bell. And uh, where are we? We're at the Vertebrate Paleontology Laboratory at the University of Texas at Austin. And how do you and I know each other? A long and sad series of accidental mistakes. <laughs> Chris is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He was my advisor when I was an undergraduate there. For the last 15 or so years, he's also been a mentor. Lucky me. What are we looking at? Describe this scene. Well, we're in an old building from the 1940s that is a former magnesium production plant. It was used during World War II, and it's been retooled now into a storage facility for museum collections and a laboratory facility for preparation and processing of fossil materials. How big is this room? I don't know the square footage of the place, but we are a large footprint here on the main floor. What else are we looking at? Let's describe what's on the ground floor. Well, right now, the, the main collections range that we're standing in now is rows of cabinets, metal cabinets, that are about six feet tall, that, that contain the fossil collections from the vertebrate paleontology lab. They're organized by time. So we're standing at one end of the room where the younger material is. And as we walk towards the back of the, the room, we'll be dealing with material that gets older and older and older. Where we're standing right now includes things that are just a few thousand years old. So what we call Holocene materials that are quite young. And as we walk back, we're now walking through the Pleistocene ice ages. And now we're moving into the pre-ice age periods of the Pliocene and the Miocene, the epochs rather than the periods. Now we're back in the Oligocene, moving into the Eocene and Paleocene. And finally, we've hit the Cretaceous. We're, what, three quarters of the way back, and we've hit the Cretaceous, which is the, the end of the age of dinosaurs. We have large Triassic collections here, which are the beginning of the age of dinosaurs. And this is all vertebrate. There's nothing invertebrate here, for the most part. For the most part. This is all bones. This is all bones and teeth. 
Yeah. 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 Well, teeth are bones, aren't they? Okay, don't give me that look. I got confused about this. <laughs> it's been a long time since you've been back in here. So you were the one who kind of put me here. Right. I started working here in 2005. And uh, do you remember the job you had me doing? I'm going to plead the fifth. <laughs> this was my bone picking job. You hooked me up with these paleontologists who had excavated some random cave and then they had these bags of sediment. And my job, my whole job, was to wash the mud out of those bags of sediment, take a pair of tweezers, and pick the bones out. That's our normal test yeah. for, for enthusiastic students who come up and say, hey, I'd like to be a paleontologist. Yeah. And we say, that's great. We have a great job for you. We put you on the, on the wash site. And then you get, you get to pick teeth and bones out of the dirt that's left over. Could not have been more boring. You know how I got through my day? And listening to podcasts. Yeah, I mean, and what I because I got paid by the hour. So the more I loaded up on podcasts, the more bones I could pick. And the, the team I was working with was like, that kid will really go at it. Because uh, I had a lot of podcasts to listen there to. Yeah. There is a kind of theme emerging from some of the conversations we've been having recently huh? about like biological surprises with global warming. Right. And that's really what the episode is about today. I recorded this conversation with my producer, Brandon Burke, and here is today's guest. Jen Sheridan, and I am the curator of amphibians and reptiles at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Years ago, in 2011, I published a paper with my then postdoc advisor on the impacts of climate on body size. And there was a lot of evidence to suggest that climate changes are making organisms smaller. Like warmer equals smaller? Correct. Yes. Weird, right? Warmer equals smaller. What the hell is that all about? What led up to that 2011 paper? I mean, how did you get into this? So it was really interesting. My advisor at the time, his name is David Bickford, and he had seen a handful of papers talking about how climate warming had impacted size of a couple of different organisms. And I think the papers that caught his attention were on the Soe sheep, which is a type of sheep in the Scottish islands. And then there was a paper on fishes in the Mediterranean. And so, you know, I think this is an interesting trend we should look into. So then I started diving into the literature and there was a lot of evidence out there that had looked at how organisms had changed over the last several decades. What a lot of these papers would do is say, well, temperature has changed like this over the last several decades and size has changed like this. But a lot of these older papers didn't really link those two statistically directly. And then I, I started thinking, you know, if this is a trend that we're seeing now, there may have been older evidence for this across geologic time periods. So I looked into whether there's evidence from the fossil record about this, and it turns out there was. And then also it was about diving into that theory behind why why we would expect to see those differences given the climate changes we have. So you talked a little bit about the evidence on the fossil record, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but those changes in body size were due to a, another past warming event, right? The Paleocene, Eocene thermal maximum. Can you talk a little bit about what species were affected and, and maybe like even if you have these numbers, like how much fluctuation was there in body size during this event? 
Can I hop in actually with a moment of geologic clarification? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's the nerdiest thing I've said all day. So what we're talking about here is the PETM, Paleo-Eocene Thermal Maximum, which is what, roughly 55 million years ago? I think that sounds right. Roughly. So it's after the the Mesozoic, it's after the dinosaurs get wiped out by the asteroid. It's sort of early mammal evolution. But at that period in time, the Earth was a lot warmer. But then there's this thousand year, quote unquote, rapid warming event right. that they call the PETM. Okay. Right. I just exactly. want to make sure everybody's up to speed on it. Okay. Yeah. So that was something that before I started working on that review paper, I did not really know. I, I'm not like a paleontologist, so I didn't know much about this period. I knew that there were past periods of warming and cooling. I discovered that there was this, on geologic terms, very rapid period of climate warming. It was still much, much longer than the scale that we're talking about today with today's climate warming. So it was several thousand years of rapid warming. A lot of the evidence from that period on body size changes comes from mammals. I think partly because mammals tend to be well-preserved in the fossil record. There are several papers that look at mammal size across that time period and show that they got smaller as the climate warmed. And then as the climate cooled, they once again got bigger. And so it was sort of going in both directions, meaning it wasn't just that they got smaller when it warmed and then stayed small. It tracked temperature very well. So that provides a very strong piece of evidence that temperature has a big impact on size. All right. Well, let's go back to the modern. I mean, help us understand the robustness of the relationship between body size and warming today. Yeah. So there's examples from when I first wrote this review, um, we had aquatic and terrestrial examples. We had plant and animal examples. There are examples from invertebrates of various kinds obviously vertebrates and both endotherms and ectotherms. So warm bodied, so to speak, and cold bodied, so to speak. And most of the studies have been done on birds. So when you're looking at these changes, one of the kind of rate limiting steps to how you can answer this question is what is the available evidence? And a lot of the evidence that people use is using museum specimens. Long been fascinated by birds, so birds tend to be very well represented for long periods of time in museum collections, and so that tends to bias these studies. There are several studies that have used long-term field data and shown the same thing. A lot of studies on mammals do that, but a lot of the very long-term studies that we have use some kind of museum specimens. Uh, So there's some bias in terms of what museum specimens are available, but I think your first point is the more, I don't know, eye-popping one. Vertebrates, invertebrates, cold-blooded, warm-blooded, plants, animals. Yep. The warmer, the smaller. (laughs) Weird. Yeah. And it's funny because when I used to like talk about this, I would say, you know, I'm sure everybody's wondering, okay, like if with climate warming, am I just like going to look better in my bikini as we move forward or what's going to happen to me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) So when we were kind of doing a, a deep dive into your work, we came across Bergman's observation. Like what is that observation? And, and I guess how well do you think it, it explains this phenomenon that you're seeing? 
Yeah. So Bergman's rule or observation basically states that within a given species, individuals in colder climates should be larger and individuals in warmer climates should be smaller. And the reason that he proposed this was because of basic thermodynamics. So if you have a smaller surface area to volume ratio, you conserve heat better. So the bigger you are, the better you can conserve heat because your surface area across which you're losing body heat is proportionally smaller than if you are very skinny for the same height or size. And so this was his proposition. This has been shown to be true in many, many mammals. People have looked at it for basically every single group. There's a handful of exceptions, but with many, many mammals and other endotherms, meaning birds, this is definitely shown to be the case. There's other similar rules, like there's something called Allen's rule that looks specifically at limb sizes, meaning it's again a surface area to volume ratio type of thing. So you have smaller limbs when it's colder because you don't want to have this big surface area. For example, you want tiny limbs to keep all of your body heat close. So this sort of principle of thermodynamics, retaining heat, if you don't need to be bigger to conserve heat, then in these warmer climates, you can just be smaller. There's obviously many other selective reasons why you might want to be big, but if conserving body heat is not one of them, you have more options. So all other things being equal, if you're in a cold climate, it's better to be bigger because you can conserve heat better. Correct. Exactly. Even in, for example, like frog egg sizes, you will often see that in colder climates, frogs will have fewer larger eggs and in warm climates, they'll have more smaller eggs. It varies across phylogenetic group, but within a group where that egg size is variable, but within like a sort of a a fixed range, then the size of those eggs is generally bigger in cold climates and smaller in warm climates. So it is, again, like a basic physiologic principle that applies to both mammals and ectotherms. Okay. I think I want to come back to how well that sort of thermodynamic line of thinking can explain this relationship. But before I do, I think there's one other question I want to ask, which is a little bit about proportionality or speed or something, because I want to know how fast this happens. I mean, Mm. the reason for having this conversation, right, is we're in a moment of accelerated global warming due to anthropogenic changes. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, like, do things shrink as fast as they heat up? You know, if if there is a sort of, I don't even know what the ratio is, but so 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade or something uh, for 50 years, and then that jumps to, I don't know, half a degree per mm-hmm. decade for 50 years, would you see biology and body size keep pace with that? Does faster warming also translate to faster shrinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in theory, yes, but this is based on lab studies, for example. So one of the reasons, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, that we sort of think or know that things should be getting smaller when the climate warms is because a number of people across almost every taxonomic level, have looked at what happens when you heat things up. And they've looked at this at like lots of different rates of warming. And you do tend to see a fairly tight correlation in change in size with increased temperature. Now, 
these tend to be fairly short-term studies compared to say like the multi-generations of organisms that are out and about with the and for obvious reasons right like it's what you can do in the lab right yeah, yeah. exactly I'm picturing a bunch of like white lab coats and a ton of heat lamps you know <laughs> yeah, yeah right or like you know you they have what are called mesocosms so people who study like tadpoles or small organisms like daphnia you get like a big what's called a cattle tank it's basically almost like a giant kiddie pool you put organisms in there and you can artificially heat the water and see what happens and so but that's on the course of several months. Some people do that over multiple generations of the organism, but very short timescales. That's actually a pretty good segue to my next question, which is like, why is this dangerous? Like if everything is shrinking, are we just going to have smaller species across the board, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that would be great if that were the case, if we just kind of like had a much cuter world um, <laughs> because everything was a little bit smaller. But what the literature showed then and now is that not everything is changing. So in 2011, when we wrote this review, we had like a table in that paper that showed that a third to half were getting smaller, a very small number were getting larger, and then there was a sizable proportion of the literature that showed no change or equivocal response. More recently, I've gone through, like I said, the updated literature, looked at everything that was known at that time and also what's been reported on since then. And it's something like 42% of all the species that have been studied where authors have directly linked some form of warming or climate change and size, that about 42% of those species are shown to be getting smaller, something like 11% are getting bigger, and then for the remaining 40-something percent, it's equivocal or no change. So if we think about like like two species interacting if one's getting smaller and one's getting bigger, like what does that do to the ecosystem? Yeah. So I think that the challenge with this is that, like you said, there's not a uniform or very easily predictable way that things are changing. So it would be, not that it would be good, but it would be a little bit simpler if it was that, okay, all endotherms are getting smaller and ectotherms are getting bigger, for example, because then we can sort of model how these organisms interact with one another and what that does. But because there's so much variation even within a taxonomic group. So birds is, again, the highest studied group out there. And even within birds, you see lots of variation. So some smaller, some a few bigger, and then equivocal response. And so because of this variation in the response, it makes it really challenging to know what the impacts on the ecosystem will be. And so the reason that size is important and that we care about it is because it tends to dictate a lot of key elements of life, such as your survival. It tends to dictate things like your reproductive output. So bigger organisms tend to have more offspring and it can impact then your resource needs. So whether you're a predator or prey, are you sort of like a calorie rich prey item for something higher up the food chain and or what are your caloric needs meaning what is your pressure on the lower trophic levels that you're preying on and so then it has these indirect effects because then some of these populations may be getting smaller because of the smaller body size other populations won't be changing and then it sort of upsets that ecosystem balance so body size is really important for a number of different features and 
ways that we predict ecosystem interactions or interactions within the ecosystem, I should say. Yeah. I never really thought about that before. I mean, it's not hard to sort of without knowing much about it, right. think about the caloric demands right. or the energy demands, if you want to think about it that way, but also what an individual body size has on sort of overall population dynamics, as well as predator-prey relationships. I mean, it's like so many other things with ecology, you tinker with one little part of the system and there's all these unpredictable cascading effects for hard to know how it's going to affect all the other organisms across a wide range of environments. Yeah. And it, it's interesting too, you know, so with ectotherms, so things like amphibians and reptiles and insects, for example, these are all ectotherms. Fish are ectotherms. They get their heat from the environment. Their metabolism is directly tied to ambient temperature. So as climate warms, their metabolism heats up. So one of the reasons it's theorized that ectotherms should be getting smaller is because as the climate warms, their metabolism increases. And unless they can sort of feed that higher metabolism, they're going to get smaller. And so in one of my earlier papers that came out around that same time with that same postdoctoral advisor, we did like a back of the envelope calculation on there's all these other theoretical papers that show like the percentage of increase per degree of climate warming that metabolism increases. And we calculated something like how many extra ants a frog would have to eat in order to maintain its size. And it was thousands. And so you can imagine that kind of coming back to that thing about why we care about size. So because of that climate warming, then like we said, there's going to be increased pressure across trophic levels based on, you know, caloric needs based on these climate changes, and that all plays into size. So I do want to make sure, because we've kind of talked about it in bits and pieces here, but I'd love to like sort of put together a short list of some of the explanations, recognizing that these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So mm-hmm. one explanation, you know, you heat things up, you accelerate metabolism rates, smaller body size. Yep. What else is sort of on the table to sort of explain things at the 30,000 foot view? Yeah. So the other thing that we touched on earlier was that you don't, you basically don't need to be as big if it's warmer. So this Bergman's rule that we talked about before, you would, you should be bigger in colder environments if that need no longer exists because you're warm all the time. You don't have to conserve that heat. Then so that thermodynamic heat conservation principle is no longer needed. And, and that's a consideration that cuts across taxonomy, yes, right? It cuts exactly. across all kinds of organisms. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yep. And And then in addition, and again, this is thought to be largely specific to ectotherms, meaning things that get their heat from the environment, is this the fact that development rate is also tied to temperature. But growth rate, when you heat these ectothermic organisms, they don't grow as fast. And so you get smaller size at either metamorphosis or first reproduction. And so that sort of smaller size at any given age or stage sticks with them throughout their life. At any given developmental stage, they will be smaller than organisms were or are in colder environments. So it's this disconnect between growth rate, increase in growth rate, and increase in developmental rate with temperature. And those are the the main things. And again, these are all related to temperature. There are some suggestions that changes in 
uh, resource availability could be driving this. And so one way that people look at this is by looking at what's called net primary productivity. So this is basically the amount of energy produced by things that make energy from sunlight. This is like bottom of the food chain stuff, phytoplankton, anything that's taking the sunlight and making... And making energy that then everything else can feed off of. And so changes in temperature and precipitation will impact that. There is this question because some of the exceptions that had been noted meaning organisms that have gotten bigger in the last several decades. In at least some of these cases, it's because resource availability has improved. So there was a study out of, I think, Norway or something where they showed that like foxes in an area had gotten bigger. And the suggestion was because there were now more local salmon farms and those foxes were taking advantage of these like farmed salmon availabilities. And so it's this question of, okay, well, in general, what are the organisms that are going to be doing well because of increased resource availability? Where are we going to see increased resource availability in terms of greater net primary productivity? The evidence that I've seen from that, it's, again, a mixed bag. Some species seem to be able to take advantage of it and get bigger. Other species can't. And that, to me, makes it really challenging for predicting how, in general, the ecosystem is going to respond. So there's been a question on my mind and might be on our listeners' minds. Despite humans putting a lot of barriers between ourselves and other animals, humans are animals. Um, Yeah. So does this apply to humans? Obviously, there's a lot of other factors there too, but is there any evidence that it's affecting humans as well? I feel like somebody had asked me this like a couple of years ago, and I think a couple of years ago, I hadn't seen any evidence for this. And then it was earlier this year, I believe, that there was a paper... And at first, like reading the title, I thought this paper looked at exactly what you're asking, like in the last 100, 200 years, like have humans gotten smaller? But what they did was they looked at over several millennia and they looked at mid-Pleistocene Homo, they looked at Neanderthals, and they looked at Pleistocene Homo sapiens. So it's not exactly modern insofar as it's not like the last 100 years. These are all fossils, but they did look at fossils across a geologic period of different temperatures, and they showed that for each of those groups, warmer temperatures equal smaller humans. Was this when we were, you know, more dependent on, I mean, we are still dependent on our environment for survival, but before we kind of separated ourselves? I think that that's the key, right, is that humans are so good at manipulating our environment. And so I think that this is one of the reasons why we are not likely to see the same trend in humans is because we've invented air conditioning and we have a lot of behavioral flexibility and we're very good at securing resources regardless of the environment. So the short answer is there's no evidence that That has happened recently to humans, but if you look over even fairly recent on geologic time periods, meaning Homo sapiens, it does show that temperature increases equal smaller humans. Brandon, did you have any other questions you wanted to ask? I guess my last one is, so two scenarios. One, we do nothing to stop greenhouse gas emissions. The world gets significantly hotter. What like what is that what does that scenario look like for 
ecosystems. And I know that's like an impossible question, right? Like predict the future. <laughs> but my other one is if we do well and, you know, I mean, we have some warming locked in, but if we do our best to avoid what we can, like, will things go back to normal? Yeah. I So... That's a really good question. One, I think that, like you said, that first question is a little bit impossible to answer because there's so many things, there's so many layers to it. So, I mean, I could address many different aspects of it, but just to kind of keep with our theme, I think that if we don't do anything, I think what we're going to see from the perspective of organism morphology and size changes is that we are going to see a lot of things getting smaller it's going to take us a while to get a handle on which things are going to be getting smaller and which aren't, which means that we're going to see a lot of disruptions to ecosystem interactions and that we're going to have a hard time sort of predicting those impacts if we do nothing. If we do kind of do something to try to halt this climate warming, I do think that it is possible for us to have a positive impact insofar as the choices that we make can really affect change in a positive way. And I do think, you know, kind of coming back to one of the fossil studies that we talked about earlier is in the fossil record, there is this evidence that things got smaller during warming and then they got bigger again during that climate cooling. So if we did what it will take to have that sort of arrest and possibly reversal of this climate warming, then I do think it is possible for us to go back, maybe not to what we think of as normal, but to something that feels a little bit more, I guess, predictable based on our understanding of ecosystem interactions and rules of life as we know them today. Look, it's fascinating. It's trippy. It's incredible. And it's uh, a reminder of you know, just how unpredictable this whole grand experiment is that we're yeah. running on the on planet Earth today. Um, yeah. So I think it's really impressive work and uh, it's been a lot of fun talking. So thanks for making time for it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great. Yeah, thanks, Jen. Thanks so much again to Jennifer Sheridan for that conversation. Thanks to Brandon Burke for participating in and helping with production. Thank you to Lydia Fortuna for producing this episode. And thanks to Chris Bell for hanging out with me at the Vertebrate Paleontology Lab at the University of Texas in Austin. And of course, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.